Katia Cafe Fabrice. I'm a DGC director and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the DGC podcast, brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada National Directors Division. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional Indigenous lands that we all live and gather around today. Although this event is online, we are all located on traditional ancestral Indigenous lands. We are grateful to the Indigenous peoples who've cared for these lands and waters for thousands of years. Many of us have come here as settlers, immigrants and newcomers in this generation and generations past. We also acknowledge those who came here forcibly, particularly as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. Therefore, we honor and pay tribute to the ancestors of African origin and descent. This episode features renowned director Ryan Johnson in conversation with fellow prolific filmmaker Vincenzo Natale. They dig into Johnson's creative process and how it deals with the insecurities that often plague filmmakers and other artists. Their discussion took place at the 2022 Toronto International Film Festival, where Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, the follow-up to Johnson's 2019 original feature, Knives Out, held its world premiere screening. Please enjoy, and I will see you on the other side. Here we are. We were having like a nice conversation backstage and then we realized, did they just call our names? And we said, so, so we'll come and have a nice conversation here. Where to begin? There's so much to say in so little time. I'm a huge admirer. I'm going to make you embarrassed, but I feel like there are very few filmmakers out there that have the kind of filmography of yours, which is not only across the board, great movies, but movies that were written by you as well. And, and movies with one no- notable exception, that are entirely your creation and box office successes, which I think, aside from whatever that does for you, for the world at large is a great thing because the film industry, is, or at least Hollywood, as we know, seems to be like a, a restaurant menu where the items keep getting crossed off the menu and now we're left with a kitty menu to some degree. And and I feel like you're bringing back some adult items to the menu. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your work as well, man. So this is going to be fun. It's going to be a fun conversation. So thank you for doing this. When I saw Brick, which was in the movie theater, I think in 2005, if I remember correctly, it's one of those debuts where like Reservoir Dogs, you just go, oh, that's like a fully formed filmmaker. There's nothing, you know, you've evolved since then, but that felt like somebody who just came out and made this thing that is fully mature work. How did you get there? Because I know that that wasn't an easy journey. That's really kind of you to say. Um, I, uh, with Brick, I wrote it when I was right out of college. So I wrote it when I was 22 um, and basically spent my 20s failing to get it made because um, if there are any filmmakers in the audience, you guys know it's, it's 
the hardest thing in the world to get someone to make your first film. The only thing harder is getting your second film made. And so, um, so yeah, it was eight years of, of um, you know, living in LA and just doing, doing, doing day jobs and just trying, trying, trying over and over. I didn't really have any industry connections. My, it sounded like my family was in the industry. I was, I was pretty socially awkward, so it's not like I was out on the scene or something. So it was just a long road. And But part of what that led to was basically eight years of overthinking every detail of what this movie was going to be. And um, beyond just storyboarding the entire thing, really having time to have it really marinate so um so I, I guess that's the one luxury when when uh, uh when you do finally get it made if you've had all that planning time that can that can come across as uh yeah come across on the screen but that's really that's very kind words about it thank you but a, a long journey yeah yeah it always is right i mean i don't know the first i'm but also yeah yeah or maybe if you have an iphone it isn't I guess, uh, I guess we were talking about that backstage, just like today, because when also when we made Brick, it was just before a digital had come around, like people were shooting on like Genesis cameras, but it was a novelty. And it was, um, it was something where it, was, it wasn't a real movie unless it was on 35. It was that, that bias still, it wasn't like a film snob bias that genuinely existed. Like you, you wouldn't, couldn't sell it for distribution. It was a different thing if it was shot on digital. Whereas today that barrier has come down, but so many other barriers have come up in terms of trying to get attention once you get something made. And um, so we were discussing that backstage, just kind of the, the way things change. I don't have anything good to say about it, but, but I just, it's interesting though. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. I feel like it's a different landscape now and, and in terms of distribution too, because I think Focus picked up that film. I remember. That. Yeah, it was it was a very like traditional sort of remnants of the '80s and '90s Sundance path, where we took it to Sundance and Focus Features picked it up and um, you know put it out, gave it like a limited release, mm. and and uh, <laughs> uh, so it it was kind of a traditional model that um, today largely the streamers have stepped into that i mean there's still you know focus is still around and sony pictures classics there's still it still exists and neon um but it's it's still it's it's kind of a different world you like that well this maybe is a good segue to my next question because i feel like your movies so often are about grifters and con artists and loopers do you feel like you need to be a scam artist when you make a movie on a certain level <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah, you're convincing somebody to, to give you the income that would support many families for years in order to create shadows on a wall. I mean, that's the ultimate grift. That's ridiculous that that ever happens. And it's uh, it makes sense that it's hard. Um, for me also, there is, though, an actual, I don't know, some, something I remember from when I was... Um, just beginning, I think there there is an element where the imposter syndrome never does leave you. And when you're starting out, especially when you want to be a director and you want to, you want to put all these elements together and then step onto a set with the confidence that you need, um, there is an element where you have to act like you have that confidence, even though you inevitably don't. And um, that's part of the job, kind of. And that never really goes away. There's always a moment. I was really relieved somewhere. I read an interview with Spielberg where he says the hardest part of directing is getting out of the car in the morning. And um, it's really, that was comforting to hear. And it really is true. That never does go away. I think there's always, I don't know if you find this, but there, there's 
always an element where you step on the set and you perform the role of a director, even if, um, you know, if, if you, you can't go based on having actually that solid foundation because it would take a psychopath to have that actual kind of confidence, I think. Yeah, everyone is going to have insecurities. You just have to, um, you got to fake it. You got to con them. You got to fool them again. Vic Werner Herzog said, a director is a clown. You are always a clown. I'm going to insist you do the rest of our interview in that place, actually, because that's uh, I will do that to you. Okay, so let's talk about, I think it's, especially in this day and age, very unusual, probably at any time, to have someone who is equally as good at the writing of a film as they are at the direction. Like, I feel your films are intensely visual. I feel like they're they're made entirely from a filmmaker's perspective, and yet the scripts are kind of like Swiss watches that, ironically, in as intricate as they are in their construction, their mechanical construction, they're intensely human. It's a very unusual combination. So when you, and I hate when people ask me this question, so I apologize in advance, but when you begin the writing process, like kind of give us an idea of what that can be. I know I'm sure it's different in every instance, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I would say is rather than being different, I mean, Thank you, first of all, but, but what I'd say rather than being different in every instance, it's different for everybody, I think. So I, I can describe what my process is. I'm happy to, but every great writer I know does it completely, completely differently. So, um, but for me, I, I uh, when I was a teenager, my dad wasn't in the entertainment business. He was in the home building business, but he loved movies. And I think he always was kind of a frustrated artist. And um, so he took me to a screenwriting seminar when I was, uh, he took me along with him. He was going to go to a screenwriting seminar and, um, and I learned about uh, screenplay structure. And basically uh, to this day, I personally, I'm a big structure guy. I'll spend the first 80% of the time writing, just working in my little notebooks, just basically outlining, basically figuring out my timeline of I posted on Twitter the one I did for Knives Out. I do, I've just always done it in the specific way where I draw arcs for each of the acts and kind of split it out into sequences with cross hatches, and then kind of just see. And for me, because um, I, I think structure can sometimes be seen as the enemy of, of creativity and of, of looseness, for me, it just it, it keeps me honest in terms of focusing on um, what you're with what, what the audience is interested in and where it hands off to the next thing the audience is interested in. And to me, that's all that structure is, is really breaking it down into bite-sized things where you're defining what the dramatic drive is of each section. Um, and so I find that tremendously helpful. But anyway, I'll, I, I generally work in that mode for a long, long period of time. And actually, the actual typing of the script is the very, very last step. You see, I have the opposite experience. I find if I get too deep into the structure, I actually lose sight of what the movie is. And when I start writing, or, or I'll, I'll outline it, and then as minute I start writing, I throw that away because I discover that's not what, what the movie really is. You feel, do you know your ending before you start writing, or do you find that through the actual writing process? It depends. But usually I have, I usually have a notion of where I'm going, like I think in very broad strokes. And then, and then in the writing of it, I find the details. But I had heard, I think it was in an interview with you, with Looper, that you created this diagram that was, in, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was inspired by Witness, which I thought was fascinating. Well, yeah, Looper was, um, 
I mean, there's there's a very just kind of big dumb similarity, which is the first half of the movie takes place in the city and the second half takes place on a farm. And um, there's other structural similarities between, and I'm a huge admirer of the movie Witness. I think it's brilliant. Um, and the, the fact that they transition from a city noir to an Amish farm halfway through and it doesn't lose momentum or tension is a magic trick. And it was literally like going frame by frame, watching a magician, like going through the movie, trying to figure out how they did it and diagramming out. I would, I would just watch the counter and I actually diagrammed out the, uh, I didn't have this. I probably could have gotten the script, but I wasn't, I, I would have been smarter to just get the script probably, but I would write down, okay, at this time that goes to the farm. And then I noticed it was very regular at like seven minute intervals. They would have a scene that checked back in with the escalating tension back into the city. And once you, I zoomed back and put it on paper, the magic trick suddenly became something that made sense to me in, in more of a structural way. So yeah, that's it. Be helpful. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And then, but and yet, though, you see, you would think that if you were that kind of writer, that the films could potentially become lifeless. But your movies are the opposite of that, which is what I think is so delicious about them is that you are consciously working with genre, but they feel so personal at the same time. So, where does the personal part come in? Well, I, I mean, I hope it's certain. I mean, I guess that's the thing for me is the structural part is not a separate thing than the personal part. And I guess that's that's what is important is that when you're diagramming it out, it's it's not like that. You, you're building this kind of impersonal framework and then you're going to weave what actually counts into that. Hopefully what you're structuring is all to the end of creating a certain experience for the audience. And that experience, hopefully tied to the very bones of what the structure does, translates to what the theme of the movie is and how you want them to feel during the course of it and by the end of it. And so... For me, it's 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 more holistic than that. The um, the structure has to be almost like the seed of what the personal part of the movie is going to be. It has to reflect it, um, and that's when you strike on something that has that, and it's pretty rare. You have to stare at a blank wall and hit your head against the desk a long time before it comes. And sometimes it doesn't. You move on to the next thing. But when you get that combination of things, that's when you're like, okay, we're we're off to the races, you know. And are you like Guillermo del Toro and have like 20 scripts in the closet somewhere? God, I wish. That son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, that bastard. <laughs> Let's call him right now and yell at him. I'm so angry with how prolific he is now. I'm a slow, lazy writer, man. No, I I, uh, I got nothing. And then <laughs> I'm terrified of writing the next thing. No, but that's good because you have such a great batting average. Like, he would be jealous. He'd be like, that son of a bitch, Wyatt. <laughs> I wrote 20 scripts and I only made 10 movies. So you've, you've created this thing. I'll save the business side for later because it's kind of important, but it's also kind of boring. When you get to make the movie, it's your baby. You've written it. Every word came from your head. And especially other than Star Wars, it's like something that completely came from you. Now you have this plethora of other people that you have to communicate with to kind of bring that to life. How married are you? Like, what is, are you kind of a hard or soft option director? Do you like to whip it into shape or do you kind of let it become what it needs to be when you bring in everyone else? I mean, I think, and maybe this, um, I don't know, this almost gets back to what I was describing with the structure. To me, I'm, I'm, I'm very specific about the things that matter. 
Um, but the things that matter aren't necessarily exactly the words on the page or exactly the scene, what the scene description says. Um, and that to me, again, is, is the, the way I feel confident when I step on a set of knowing what the scene is actually about is because I know its place in, again, because I keep using the word structure, it sounded very, very boring. I apologize, but I, because I know its place in this kind of, um, the, the big picture of the whole thing and I know what its purpose is. But no, I tend to be very kind of, it's not like we're just winging it. We're typically doing the script, but if words change or someone wants to, I, I tend to anything. It, it, it also, the other analogy I, I'll, I'll beat to death here is, um, it, 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 and directors love their war analogies. I apologize. Um, but uh, it is a bit like, and this happens at all the different stages of it, it's like Napoleon drawing out his battle plans and that's writing the script and you have your map and you've got like your wooden horses and cannons and you get, okay, we'll flank this and we'll do that. And that's all well and good. And then you get down on the battlefield and you're just trying to survive and make the day and, uh, and you kind of do whatever you have to do to make it work. And I think that happens from script to production. And then that happens from production to editing as well. You get in the edit room and all the clever things you came up with with your shots and your things and all the long takes that you did, but your movie's 22, 20 minutes too long and it's boring. So you have to get in there and kill your babies. You know, you have to survive the day. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm precious uh, about some things, I guess. Right. And in a very nitty gritty sense, you got the money, everything's got the cast and everything. Time to start putting it together for real. Do you... Be what is like the first thing that begins that process? Is it looking for locations? Is it storyboarding? Are those things sort of happening back and forth in a, a fluid way? What, what, in a very specific way, like when you get home at night, what are you doing? You mean like after a script is done when you're first starting to like, yeah. First day, production office is open. Oh. Um, maybe you've done some soft prep, but you're like really, right. you know, okay, this is really happening now. Yeah. <laughs> you're in trouble. You got to actually get that thing. <laughs> What 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 is in the very nitty gritty sense like? What are you actually doing? So I do I do still storyboard, and I have my storyboards are comical. If anyone's ever insecure about doing their own boards, you should see mine. They're just ridiculous, like stick figures. And I feel like I've now drawn so many of them. I should just by practice have gone slightly better. I feel like I'm getting worse actually. Every time I try and draw a draw a car, it just looks like a misshapen camel or something but i uh um but i do i do storyboard but again I'll, I'll i'll storyboard just to have kind of a um i think i would be terrified to show up on set and not have some kind of plan but then you get there you put the scene on its feet with the actors you rehearse it and obviously it becomes organic and you find things that are going to work better in the space and it's loose but i still i i need that plan showing up on set so i'll spend a lot of time in prep storyboarding. And then other than that, it's just all the prep stuff that, um, I don't know, do you enjoy prep? Do you enjoy that process or? I used to be a storyboard artist. So that was oh, my, okay. my, that's like my one superpower and I'm useless at everything else, but I would, um, but I do, I resist the temptation to storyboard until after the script is done. And generally until after I know the movie's actually going to happen. And then, and if I can until after I know what the locations are. I was wondering if that was smart. That's really smart. Yeah. I like seeing a movie where I feel the presence of the invisible narrator. And I always feel that with your movies. And I'm sorry to say, but 
your Star Wars is the best directed one after Irving Kirshner's. By, and I don't, I don't mean any disrespect to any filmmakers that are not present, but like it's a direct, it's a movie that's actually directed, right? It's not, and and it really is like it's and it's beautiful and so poetic and visual and and anyway, so you clearly have like you have that talent in spades. I'm just curious about how you how you arrive there. I know you have a team of people that you've consistently worked with for a very very long time, which I think is. Also, one of the other things that I love about your movies, which we've been talking about, is that even in The Last Jedi or the sequel, Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out, kind of feel like I'm watching a, a movie in the best possible way, in the sense that there is so much humanity infused in it. And I, there's like a Truffaut quote, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's something to the effect of like, I only like to, I only like cinema where I feel the I only like watching movies where I feel the joy of cinema or the agony of cinema and anything in between I'm not interested in. And I feel when I'm watching your movies, I'm feeling the joy of cinema. Is that the case? And does that have something to do with who you work with? Well, I, I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of, I started out making movies with my friends in, in high school. And um, that's how I, I, I did go to film school. But the reality is that it, it, that's that's what I would do on my weekends with my buddies in high school. We would just make hundreds and hundreds of shorts, and they were it was dumb shit. It was just like it wasn't like we were trying to make art or showing it to anyone. It was just literally, let's make a James Bond parody this year. Let's make a horror movie this weekend. Let's do this dumb Monty Python type thing. But what I was doing is just getting used to having a camera in my hand and getting used to telling a story visually. And looking back, um, because of the technology back then, I was editing in camera. And so it was also, um, in a very real way, training a muscle in terms of knowing know, uh, knowing editing while you're in the process of shooting. Um, and that's the other thing. I, 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 I cut brick myself and I've, I've kind of have... That's the other thing I think that helps showing up on set is knowing editing wise when you're shooting ex how it can kind of fit together. But um, anyway, but uh, I lost track of the question. I'm babbling. No, no, no. But uh, well, maybe if you could talk about your relationship to Steve Yedlin, Ethan Johnson, like you know people that have been doing this with you for a long time. Well, I'm sorry. That's what that's what I was getting to. Is for me the process of making a movie. It was never like a a professional endeavor of like it was never it would back then it wasn't even separated out like oh here's you do the script and then you do prep and you production it was you get together and make a movie and it's all one thing and um i think maintaining a sense of that and also that it's something you do with friends it's kind of something you do with friends uh that you would want to do in your free time <laughs> and so uh i feel really lucky that i've 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 got a group of people and we've worked together really consistently and we've kept it feeling. And honestly, on the Star Wars movie, it felt the same way. It was crazy. <laughs> it felt like, uh, yeah, it felt like the biggest independent film of all time when we were on set. I mean, the actors kept saying that. They kept saying, this is so weird. This feels like a small movie while we're making it. And I took that as a huge compliment. It felt like, um, but I think it's just because it didn't feel like there were layers and layers of machinery um, it felt very intimate because they were only dealing with me and I was dealing with my crew the way that I did on Looper or Brick or any of the other ones, you know? Right. In the sort of terrifying empire-like world of Hollywood, do you feel like Ram, your producer, is there to kind of buttress you against that stuff to allow you to do that? Or is that more just the, the way things worked out? No, that's, I mean, the reason I'm 
sitting here with you right now is because of Ron Bergman, who's my producer, who I found right before we made Brick. And um, yeah, I feel like he's he, he's so savvy and he knows how the sausages get made and he's, he's a great con man, but he's also a terrific human being. And he also, in his capacity as a producer, is uh, an artist and is protective of the creative process through the act of producing. Um, and if you can find, I mean, I, there's a lots of filmmakers who have a mind for producing and a mind for business. And if you do, that's amazing. I don't at all. And I feel like looking back, um, there's so many young filmmakers who are much more talented than I was, who didn't find a producer who could protect them and who could act in their interests. And, um, that's kind of the deciding factor. I mean, I, I, yeah, after after making Brick, just looking back now in retrospect, getting the Brothers Bloom made, and then after nobody saw the Brothers Bloom, the fact that we were able to get Looper made, um, it's because I had a great producer. So, yeah. I feel like I know some cautionary tales of filmmakers who are friends of mine and who did not get the right producer with catastrophic results. So I would say like for aspiring filmmakers, that's maybe, no one talks about this, but probably one of the most important things you can do is find a great producer. Really, 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 really true. And somebody that you trust, someone that you genuinely trust. And the deal of this guy, this you know, this person seems shady. I don't really trust it, trust them, but they can they can get me. It, it seems like they have an in at this company or could get me this or that. And you know, it's 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 a deal with the devil. I mean, it's really is important that you see your producer as your partner and that that you can trust them in that regard, you know? Yeah. I kind of want to get at it. Okay, I asked this, the, the most annoying question you could possibly imagine. Uh, e, you ready? You got to do it in the Herzog voice, though. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I, I can only say one word. I can only say one word with the Werner Herzog accent. So. Clown. That's it. Um, imagine, if you will, there's a technology that exists that allows us, it's kind of like Next Step VR, where we can see your thoughts and feel your feelings like a VR unit, the recording unit that we put on your head and it's day one and you're shooting a movie. What do we see? <laughs> what is that like? Like, I think that's probably a Herzog question. <laughs> as you could have done this, we could be enjoying. We are all clowns. Still sit tones right now. No, but I'm just, I think what I, what it really, it's a stupid question, but I want to. Like what's the process on set? If somebody, you know, because people get this abstract view of filmmaking, even when you see like all these making documentaries, I never feel like you really understand what it's actually like. It's like watching video of someone driving a car. It really gives you no sense of what it is actually like to drive a car. So what is it like? And I don't want to like, no, it's, I don't want to make you, you know, expose anything or make you. It's a know, great question. Like a it's a terrific question. It's, it's so, so I'll describe in really prosaic terms. So, I mean, so I typically show up having, you know, storyboards that I've done. I don't bring my storyboards to set at that point. I just have them in my head and I know the vague plan that I have. But the the, the first thing that I'll do is um, we'll do a, a blocking rehearsal with the cast. So we'll get in the space and just me and the cast will kind of walk through and I will start by showing them what I, because that's the other thing. I feel like recently I've been really coming around to, I think when I started, I was thinking in terms of shots. I was thinking in terms of shot design and cool shots. And um, more and more, I think making Knives Out was a big part of this just because it was an ensemble and a big group and Glass Onion even more so. Um, 
uh, I've realized it's all about blocking and it's all about staging and going back and studying Michael Curtiz movies and looking at the way that um, Spielberg's actually a master at it. He's a master at blocking and staging and um, realizing that the shots are actually relatively elegant and simple. It's all about where you place the actors in relation to the shot. So I'll start with kind of telling the actors, this is kind of what I had in mind and that you're here and then he, on this line, maybe try moving over here, but then you kind of give them that big guideline and then you run the scene and you see if it feels right or wrong and you learn things and you change it. There will be times when, depending on how big a day we have to shoot, it'll they'll want to kind of wander over here and I'll say, you know, if, you can find, if we can find a way to motivate you in the scene to stay on this line, that will help me. Just knowing in my head that means I can do it from one dolly track instead of laying floor. I mean, you can, and if you have good actors, you can get to that level of specificity and they'll work with you if they know, you know, it, as long as you're not just dictating it, but you're collaborating with them and saying, is there a way that we can make this work? So I'll, we'll block it out. Sometimes things will change. Sometimes they won't. And then we'll thank the actors and let them go and get their costumes and makeup on. And then my, the crew and the DP will come on stage and we'll have marked out where the actors are going to be. And then um, I'll take a finder and pop usually a zoom lens on it so I can look at different things and I'll get down and I'll say, okay, our first setup is this and I'll stay here and I'll sit right here and, and the camera assistant will measure the, measure the height of the camera and mark exactly where it's at. I say, and then we do a dolly move to over here and he'll make a mark there. And then they'll get to work and set up the shot and then the actors will come in and we'll do that shot and we kind of then start working our way around the room and doing all the setups. Yeah, that this sounds, I don't know if this is interesting or if it's just obvious, like how it's done, but that's, that's just literally the prosaic process of the day in terms of, um, and then you do it again for the next scene. I don't think that is obvious. And I think that, of course, different directors will approach it in different ways. Like Kurosawa is famous for gathering footage and then kind of piecing it together in the edit room, whereas Hitchcock would kind of, as he would say, create it all before he walked on the set, which is probably not entirely true, partially true perhaps. I sense that you fall between those two camps a little bit in terms of... Closer to the... Hitchcock. Much closer to the Hitchcock. Much closer to Hitchcock. And I'm definitely editing in my head. That's the other thing then. Once once you start doing scenes, if it's a long performance scene, I mean, part of your job is to is to be an audience. And then that's the other thing that I've, I've I hope, like learned more and kind of tried to get better at over the years is, is staying present um, in the moment on set as opposed to having a plan and just showing up to execute that plan when you walk onto a set, paying attention to being present in the space and trying to pay attention to it and trying to see what you can use to your advantage in in the space or when the actors are running it, catching little happy accidents. Um, but yeah, I will be, that's the other aspect of it. When the actors are performing, you're the audience, you know, that's that's your function. And so being completely present in their, you know, being completely engaged with what they're doing and hinging on their every word but also in your head clocking, okay, I have this, I have this moment and this, this works great. I have that line and I have this series, but I haven't quite got this moment yet. And so going back and working on that then with the actors and clocking it all in your head until you know you've got the entire scene in a way that you can splice it together, I guess. And I feel that in the movies and I feel like that isn't obvious and everyone has their own particular way. Have you ever found yourself in an instance where you know, you got home at night after having done all of that and went, oh my God, I fucked it up. 
every night, every single night. You're, we're terrified. Yeah. No, inevitably you have all this stuff and it does kind of, uh, I go home at the end of the day and I'm just like, ah, oh, shit, I hope we can make that work. And, the, <laughs> and then hey, you do, and then inevitably you, you figure out a way to. That's right. Very often probably pleasantly surprised or the thing that you're worried about nobody notices. I find sometimes I obsess about something that I think is just a huge problem that nobody notices. And then something that never noticed or didn't bother me at all. It becomes like, a, yeah, the thing that everybody hates or has a problem with. Let's talk a little bit about working with actors, because again, I feel like in all senses of what you do, you're such a storyteller. I mean, I feel like you're intensely visual, but I always feel like anything that you do visually is in the service of the narrative. Actors have their own way of perceiving things sometimes. I've learned to listen to actors, actually, because I actually think that usually they know what the hell they're talking about, but they are seeing things probably through the lens of their character. So how do you kind of negotiate or do you need to negotiate with them in terms of getting what you know the narrative needs versus what their character needs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And you're, that's, I mean, incredibly wise words and things that I, it, that's another element that I feel like is a learning process is learning. I mean, again, because when you start out, I think you're very focused on the, or at least I was, I can speak for myself, very focused on the technical aspect of it. And then the humbling moment when you realize you could shoot this with a VHS camera with one light against a brick wall. And if you believe the performances, the audience will be engaged with it. And you can shoot it absolutely gorgeously. And if the performance fields aren't clicking, then everyone will be bored. And so the only thing, and really, I mean, the only, your only job that really ultimately matters on set is giving the actors what they need to make it feel, make it feel real. Um, you're right. It becomes a negotiation with, between that and what you need for the narrative, especially when you do Story, story, the type of stories I've been doing recently where it's, it is that Hitchcock clockwork type thing. The thing is, actors are, are into that. I, I found the way to do it is not to try and, you know, trick them or like bring them around to something. It, you, you just have open communication with them. You just, you know, okay, I, under, I completely understand that. Let me explain here what, what I need. The moment I need to get around to is this because of this and this. And then open up the collaboration between them, uh, between you and them of how do we get there? How do we get there in a way that, that you can play that's going to feel real? And what can we change and what should we change then if we need to, to, to make that happen? As opposed to you trying to do a chess game to figure out how to get them to do it, just bringing them into the process and making it a collaboration and then suddenly, um, suddenly you're on the same team, you know? And do you find in terms of communicating, and I'm sure with every actor, it's different, right? Because every person is different. But in terms of communicating, how direct are you about it? Like, for instance, there's a thing you're never supposed to do, which is say to an actor, say it faster. You're just not supposed to say that. I say that's all the time. Right. And I've learned to say, yeah, yeah. I've had actors say, do you want me to say it faster? I'm like, yes, please say it faster. And then it's no problem. So uh, there's, I think there's a certain kind of unfounded fear that maybe we've been learned from other people's that you can't be direct with actors. But do you, is that... Sounds like that's your approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I was petrified of actors when I made Brick. I had never, because I'd always just made dumb shorts and cast my friends in them. You know, this was my first time working with actual actors. And I think I was petrified that there was going to be some kind of secret language or code I had to learn or that I had to talk around what I wanted to kind of, and it was, it's it, working with actors is my favorite part of the process now. And it was incredibly liberating 
when I realized, especially, like I said, if you get good actors, um, that you can't, there is no secret language. You can just, you can just openly communicate with them, even if they then have to take that and translate it into whatever their process is. That's their job. The same way I'm not going to tell the DP, put a, you know, put this kind of light there and that kind of light there, but I'm going to describe to them, I want the light flowing through the window. I want this to fall up to darkness and they make the translation into what that happens. That's good actors will do that as well. You know? And when you, of course, it depends on the actor and the situation and so on, but do you try to make it a simple direction? Like, are you, I've heard people give direction where it's like five paragraphs and I'm thinking, I'm looking at the actor going, oh my God, how do they process that? Do you, do you try to make it concise? You try to, but there's also an element, I don't know if you find that there's an element where it's very much like uh, trying to think of like a good analogy. It's, 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 there's an element where it feels like you're on a, a tightrope together. There's an element of adrenaline that comes into it because it's watching and get excited. They're running in and you, you might have a half-baked thought or reaction to it, but you just get it out. And I feel like that's actually the intuition of a, a part of, Part of it is also giving yourself the ability to watch something, have an intuitive feeling about what's missing from it, and then spring out there and try and just blurt, blurt that out as opposed to trying to craft the exact thing to get that. Or, again, coming up with like something like the, the perfect words to trick them into doing it right or something, literally just having an emotional reaction to what you just saw, lining that up with what you know the scene needs to be, and then going out there and just saying it in the plainest, simplest speech that you can possibly say to them, you know, and then hope for the best. When the light is falling, certainly even on a Star Wars movie, light is all do not control the sun, or at least not too much. When the light is falling, like what is your, you seem like so level-headed to me. Like how do you, how do you deal with emergency situations basically is panic, is it panic, do you panic? <laughs> Right now, I'm making um, my the, the first my first TV show. I'm making a show with Natasha Leone that's kind of like a sort of mystery Columbo style detective show. I'm excited. It's fun. It's been really fun. But it's also been shooting, and I'm I'm directing three of the episodes, and it's basically shooting like sixty page scripts in ten days. And it's been um, which I know in the indie world is is par for the course. But for an old fogey like me who's been <laughs> making these more padded schedules, it's really been fun to take it back to the nuts and bolts of also having to factor in how do we design, take everything we've been talking about and design it so that you can shoot, you know, 10 pages in a day. But that's, I don't know, that's, 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 that's fun for me, you know, and end of the day, it's, it's really fun when you're, uh, I remember directing an episode of Breaking Bad, Ozymandias, it was like this big climactic episode. And we realized that we were out there in the canyon in the desert. So the, the light was going to go behind and the, you could see the shadow creeping towards us. And it was like 4.30 p.m. and we were racing. We realized, oh, shit, we forgot the final thing that, uh, that Walt stands in front of Jesse and says to him that absolutely destroys Jesse before he's like dragged off. And I was like, we forgot to shoot Brian saying that line. Get the camera, get it over. And literally, it was the crew running as the shadow was like moving. And we ran like 20 feet in front of the shadow and set it up. And it was creeping towards us. It was like, where's the last arc? Brian, get over here. And Brian, God bless him, like sprinted over and then stood in front of the camera and then stepped in front and said, I killed. And and it was, it was, and then Jed, like right after we got the take, like the shadow, like was creeping up the back of his legs. It was, it was, 
magnificent. It was so much fun. And it was just, we all just like, oh, God. So God bless losing the light. Otherwise, you would never have moments like that. And that's, you know. Okay, well, it's nice to hear other people suffer that way. Okay, so you've made the movie. We're in the edit room, which is a place that people generally like. Like another, there's another great Truffaut quote that I'll mangle, which is something like, when I'm writing, I want to be directing. When I'm directing, I want to be editing. When I'm editing, I want to be writing or something. But but I think in general, people like to be in the edit room because it's just not insane. And it's also not lonely in the same way that writing is. Um, and you're not at the bottom of the hill, really. Um, do you have, you, you cut brick, but... Do you have a methodology? Like, do you like to cut while you're shooting and then respond to the, that material? Or do you kind of leave it to the end? Or what, what is the process? No, I don't typically. I mean, my, I, I've now worked with Bob Doucet, my editor, for several movies and um, have kind of, Bob kind of, I feel like I learned through working with Bob how to have a relationship with an editor and how to have a collaboration in a way that um, is additive and... Uh, just because I do have an editor's brain, um, it took me a while to kind of find that. And uh, and Bob's patience and talent is a big part of that. Um, but uh, no, I don't. I, Bob will assemble while we're shooting and a, very occasionally he'll say to me, hey, I think you might want to get an insert of this. Or hey, in this moment, uh, how were you thinking this would fit together? Because I think you're missing a close-up of this. And um, he's right an infuriating amount of the time. And so... And in that case, I'll go in and I'll look at that. But typically, I don't. I don't like to look at assemblies or anything while I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Russian. Sorry, do you look at Russian? Like, do you look at the daily? Typically, I don't. If there's a shot where I'm very curious about how it came out, I'll watch it. But typically, I like to finish the day's work and immediately start thinking about the next day's. Um, uh, and then when we're done, I mean, Bob will have assembled it, and I've kind of. I don't know how this is going to sound, but. I've kind of learned to not watch assemblies. Um, and the day I kind of figured out I didn't have to watch the first assembly was this liberating, like, sun god rays day of I'm free. And because it's always, not that it's, but, you know, Bob is a tremendous editor, but as as the filmmakers out there know, watching an assembly that, that they just put together is always painful because it's not, it's not what you had in mind and you're inevitably so depressed like you just want to shoot yourself in the face after you watch it like is this ever going to work so what we do is after when we sit down we'll do it reel by reel we'll do like 20 man chunk by 20 man chunk and we'll watch a reel and then we'll start working on the reel and when we get to the end of of that reel we'll watch the next reel and then we'll work through that reel and then once i've done that for the whole movie only then will i watch the whole thing front to back where I've at least gone in and roughed in so then anything where I want to shoot myself in the face I know at least it's it's me it's my fault so yeah that's great so now now the ugly part of this conversation the business because I think it's an interesting moment where I mean the whole plan is probably coming to an end soon so it won't matter anyway oh, right. but, um, but it, you know the world is changing we don't know where it's going really I don't mean to be that cynical but but it is changing and and I always feel like Hollywood or the film industry is very often reflective of that in its own peculiar way. You just made a massive movie for Netflix. And, and I think about young filmmakers, people are just starting out and kind of looking at like, oh, what is the future? Like, well, I, when we made little independent movies, they stood a reasonable chance of getting a theatrical release. And they, and in certain, yeah, and they, and they had theatrical releases and then they could actually become quite lucrative. But that doesn't, that paradigm almost doesn't exist anymore. So I'm just, 
curious, given where you are now in this process you've gone through, what are your thoughts and about the future of, of, of the industry? And I don't want to put you on the spot, but there you go. Oh, hell man. I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, I think there are, obviously we're going through like some big sea changes right now and how distribution works and then the industry. I do also think that there's, there's a, a tendency to kind of romanticize the way that it worked back then because it feels to us, I mean, because you had a similar thing where you had an independent film that you made and then it you know, went through kind of like the cycle and, 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 and succeeded. The reality is that even back in the day was even though there was, you're right, there was a model for that, it was still an incredibly slim, it was, you know, the odds in terms of like any given film getting that path and getting to that place were still incredibly, incredibly hard. What I'm saying is it's, it's, I don't know, man, it's, it's just really, really hard to make something new and to make something original and to get people's eyes on it. And um, I'd say I'm typically also an optimist in that I believe that, I also believe that the limiting factor out there is not how people can watch it and is not, you know, the, the method that they watch it. The limiting factor is just there are, are not that many, um, I don't know, if you can make something, if you can hone your voice, if you can work on work on your craft, if you can make something that's truly unique and comes from your specific voice and is well done and that works, that is still the rarest thing, not even in terms of the industry, but in terms of what audiences want to see. And I do genuinely believe that, um, I do genuinely believe if you can do that, it will it will be noticed and it'll be, it'll be found. And, um, I know Pollyanna, I'm sure there's a lot of you out there who want to just throw something at me right now because it's, it's fucking hard. It's still fucking hard. And, um, and I know it is, but at the same time, I also know there's just not that much with something truly special and interesting comes along. It, you know, I don't know. We have, we do, we, we still want to see that we crave that we hunger it. So, um, it's hard and it's probably harder now than it's ever been, but, but please, please, please don't be defeated by that. Please make, make stuff and make stuff with your authentic voice. And remember that as opposed to trying, trying to make something that you think will sell in this environment or that environment, the true value that you have is in your unique voice. And if you look at stuff that actually does punch through, inevitably it's not stuff that was calculated to punch through. It's stuff that came from a personal place of uh, how somebody sees the world or came from someplace no one ever could have imagined because it only exists in one individual's head and they somehow managed to get it in a, on, on a screen so people could see it. And um, that's magical. And that's still... Uh, that's still solid gold buried in the earth that everybody's looking for. So, so keep making that go. Yeah. 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 That's it. Sorry. I should point out that you should check out Ryan's, uh, website because he has a Vimeo account, which has a lot of his, he very courageously has posted a lot of his old films, but they're actually really, really good. And there's one called, and I've, I, forgive me if I'm, this isn't the title, but I think it's the psychology of the psychology of dream analysis, dream analysis. Oh, sorry. And it's, it kind of reminded me of La Jete. Which was a very inspiring film when I saw, like, when I was um, a film student, uh, because that, that movie, if you've ever seen it by Chris Marker, is entirely done with, except for one shot, with still photographs. And in, but it's a science fiction story. And by the way, it ended up being the basis for 12 Monkeys, which is like a giant 
Hollywood sci-fi movie. So, and I always wanted to make sci-fi movies. I was like, how do I do that with no money? And then lo and behold, here's this film from the 1960s in France that does exactly that. And I feel like your film in his own very unique way does a similar kind of thing. Because if you see Ryan's film, it's, it's probably like high eight footage with like paper cutouts and like very done in this very simple way, very low tech way, and yet is utterly enthralling. And I think it's like one of the best stories I've encountered recently. Like it is a, it is a perfect movie actually. And, and I think it, it's worth checking out just because it's a great, it, it points north, you know, it gives you a direction of like, if I wanted to make a movie and do something special, how would I do it with nothing? And then that's kind of what you did. That's, I know we're almost out of time, but just a quick story about that short. So that I made that short with Steve Yadland, who's my cinematographer, because we had spent years and years trying to get brick made, and we realized we had stopped making shorts, and we had been thinking about nothing but money, and we had been thinking about nothing but how can we get our film financed, and it was killing our souls. And we said... And so I said, you know what, let's, and, and anytime we did make something, it was like, should we make a trailer for Brick? Should we make like a, a spec thing for Brick or a pitch reel for Brick to try and get it made? It was all strategic. And finally I said, let's make a short that's useless. Let's make a short, let's make a short that will not, it is not calculated, that will not advance our careers at all, but we just want to make something cool. And that's what we did over a couple of weekends. We just got some friends together and, uh, and, and I wrote this thing and we shot this little short and just, I cut it together on Final Cut Pro and just, you know, and then, and, and then had it. And then ironically enough, that short ended up being when I met Ron Bergman, I, I he, I showed him that short and that's what kind of convinced him to sign on and produce Brick. And then when I had my first meeting with Joseph Gordon-Levitt about being in Brick, that's the first thing I gave him was that short. And he told me later when he saw that, he, he was like, okay, yeah, I know you can tell a story on film. I'm going to sign on and, and, and do this movie. All to say that getting back to that basic thing of work from your heart, you know, don't work from, don't work from strategy. Don't work, just make stuff that comes from here. That's ultimately kind of like the best, I think, career advice you can have is to, you know, and, I strongly agree. I've seen so many examples and experienced so many situations like that too, where I just, yeah, do it for yourself. And then ironically, it feels like build it and they'll come, you know. If you could be a part of film history, another time in film history, anywhere, anytime, other than this moment, what, what would you want to and what would it be? So I would, and my, my wife, Karina, is here. She does a podcast called You Must Remember This. So I really want to hear her answer to this question, actually. For me, though, I, I, uh, I would love good to go back to the, to the birth of silent film in Los Angeles. To me, that the, it's almost like trying to imagine the science fiction world. The, imagining the literal birth of a medium and imagining what the creative electricity must have been like for this group of young people in the middle of this cow town, uh, this developing city, to be creating this new industry and this entirely new medium and art form and to discover the that you can edit. And they discover you can pop into a closer shot to discover, oh, if we do this, it dissolves from one shot to another. I don't know, the creative energy of that. Um, there's a fantastic uh, documentary series that the Kent Brownlow did called Hollywood, which I don't know, for a long time it wasn't available because there's a ton of clips from silent films in it and they couldn't clear it. I 
long time that you could only find it on YouTube. But I think it I think it is actually somewhere streaming now. Hollywood, Kenneth Brownell, and it's an amazing documentation of that era. And he made it in the early 80s when a lot of the people who had been working in the silent era were very old but were still alive. And he tracked them down and went to their apartments in like Studio City. And he interviewed not just... Um, you know, not just actors, but he, but you know, he interviewed cameramen, he interviewed stuntmen, he interviewed producers, he interviewed directors. It's an absolutely fascinating thing that brings that era to life in a way that really makes you realize. I think we picture the guys in like the long argyle socks, like cranking the thing, but to realize, no, that it was the equivalent of, um, I don't know. It, it's it, it, it's the, the vitality of that. Anyway, yeah. So uh, go back then. Good answer. Very yeah. good answer. That's fascinating. Also, yeah. Vicenzo, oh. thanks for doing it. Guys, thank you so much for coming, listening so patiently. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed this fantastic conversation as much as I did. I love the humility of this filmmaker. It certainly hit home to hear a director of that caliber talk about the imposter syndrome that creeps in. It happens especially at the beginning of a filmmaker's career, although I'm not sure this feeling of inadequacy ever leaves. Ryan Johnson said, Act like you have confidence, even if you don't. That's part of the job. As soon as you step on set, you have to perform the role of a director, even if you have insecurities. Because as the saying goes, fake it until you make it. As directors, we've all been there. We all know what the imposter syndrome is. I loved hearing Ryan talk so candidly about his writing process and his approach to directing. In addition to being golden information, this was a story in itself. And as I was listening to the conversation, I felt like I was on an adventure where I was given the clues to collect gems. My two favorites. Structure is not the enemy of creativity. And the second one, structure is about creating a certain experience for the audience, how you want them to feel during the course of it and by the end of it. Then Ryan said that his biggest ally was his producer. I'll say this to you. Find your filmmaking tribe. Find your storytelling community. Someone that believes in you in the same way that Ryan found somebody that believed in his voice from the start and protected that voice. This was the case for his first feature, Brick, and up to this day, he continues to cherish his partnerships. Another element I can relate to is the fact that Ryan nurtures his indie spirit even when he works on huge productions. For instance, the actors on Star Wars said the set felt like a small movie. As an indie director myself, it's comforting to know that it's possible to hold on to that mindset. It is something I confess that up to this day, I sort of battle with internally. Because 
while I'm attached to the indie way of making a film, once bigger budgets are at play, it can become more challenging because the more money is on the table, the more people are involved. And if people by any chance don't necessarily agree or have an aligned vision for the project, the more negotiating is required. Choose your battle. And most importantly, choose your people. Thanks for joining us for this great chat. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at DGC Talent on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're looking to hire a director, you can access an amazing resource, directors.ca, where you'll find a director with the perfect skill set to match your project. Special thanks to technical producer Giacomo Beltrami and producer Hans Engel. Take care of yourselves and talk soon on the next episode.